Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're using a Bible that is in the pew, one of those blue Bibles, then it is page 958. So I need everybody opening their Bibles. If you've got your phone or your tablet and you get to your Bible that way, let's get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to need to see exactly and precisely what God has written for us. I want you to look at the screen behind me and follow along as I read the paragraph that you're going to see. So you got to do two things, get it open to 1 Corinthians 10, but listen to this as I read it. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it could be very peaceful, but if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now at first, when I read that to you, or when you're reading it and following it along, it makes no sense. But listen, I'm going to provide you in one word the context, and it's going to snap this into clarity for you. You ready? Here it is. Kite. Now let me reread it, and you've got the word kite in your mind. A seashore is a better place than a street because you need lots of room. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Do you see how important context is? When you understand the context, you can understand what the meaning is. And so when we read scripture, and especially popular verses, verses that you find on Hallmark cards, verses on t-shirts, verses that people use, usually and often with those who are struggling or suffering. But when you get to these popular verses, it's not unusual that context has been taken away from it. And the verse loses its meaning. And so what you have to do is remember or recover the kite. You have to recover the context. And when you do that, all of a sudden, wait a minute, that doesn't really mean what I thought it meant. Maybe you don't even like the way it's supposed to mean. I have somebody that's already told me that. They kind of like the way that they've always thought it meant. Well, the power of God's word surfaces and explodes when you rightly divide it. And that's what we're going to do today with 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So let's read it. Here's the verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, you may have heard that before. Chances are you're probably pretty familiar with it. But somehow what has emerged from this verse is this popular statement. God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, you may have said that. That's not biblical, by the way. That's not a biblical verse. That's not a verse somewhere in the ethos of Scripture. God will not give you more than you can handle. It's not going to be found in the pages of the Word of God. 
there is a little bit different way that people express it, and that is, wow, God must really have a lot of confidence in your ability to handle this trial, because this is a big one. Now notice where the focus goes. It goes on the person's strength rather than the sovereign, powerful God. That is not an accurate interpretation of this verse. In fact, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8, and you're not going to see it on the screen, so you've got to listen to this very carefully. It's very brief. Listen to what Paul wrote. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever gotten to that place where you have despaired of life itself? Where you have been so utterly burdened, listen, beyond your strength, beyond your ability to handle it, that you didn't even really want to live. That's not that unusual for a lot of us. So let's find out what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is really meaning. And I'm going to give you three ways to approach this, and we're going to take some journey through Scripture, through Corinthians, to try to discern the context. Here's the point that I want to start with. The Christian must learn self-control. Now, I hope you're writing that out in your notes. If you're not, you, you know, if you don't have one in the sermon notes in front of you, maybe you could just write it out on a piece of paper that's in your Bible, or if you've got a tablet, maybe you've got a notes app that you can write it out. These are really important, and I'm going to build on one another. We're going to find a way, a better way to approach our verse. The Christian must learn self-control. Now, we know that makes sense, right? We just know that we've got to have self-control. But it is very difficult to build it. It's very difficult to exercise it. Listen to verse 12. Now, if you're in your Bibles, you got it. let's find the context. You ready? We've read verse 13. That's our twisted scripture verse. Now look at verse 12. Let's read this. We're going to start finding what Paul was building up to. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So here we go. We're going to be hunting for the context. Look at the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore forces you previous and makes you look back to see what is there before. So you've got to go forward. You've got to go backwards rather. And you've got to see what the text has been saying. But I want to tell you therefore, now look at me for a moment. Therefore is a connector word. It's connecting thoughts. So if you're reading the daily bread, or if you're leading my, reading my utmost for his highest, or if you're just opening up your Bible tomorrow morning, and you open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, and you read, therefore, listen, you've got to stop, student of God's word, and you've got to have the discipline to start going backwards to find the context. That's how you study God's word. So therefore is a connector word. Now go back to verse 11. Now these things took place. What are these things? He's telling you to go back. What are these things? Well, I'm going to tell you what Paul is doing is he's stringing a necklace with beads. Now picture in your mind a beaded necklace. You've got the beads, but through those beads is the string. And it ties them all together. So let's follow those beads back. Therefore was the first bead. Now these things happened. That's the second bead. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place. That's another bead. You know, this is more fun than 
walking around the neighborhood looking for Charmanders and Diglets. If you don't know what Pokemon Go is, that utterly made no sense to you. We're getting close to learning the context, but we've got another bead in this verse. It's found in verse 1. Look at the first word in chapter 10, verse 1, 4. Now listen, you can't stop. Now i got to tell you this super quickly. Hopefully one of these sermons in this series, I'll give you a little bit more background, but when God divinely inspired the men, 40 authors, over a span of 1,500 years, to write the Word of God, 66 books. When he divinely inspired them to do this, they did not get, Paul the Apostle who wrote this, did not get to the end of chapter 9 and put a little one zero. I'm now starting chapter 10. This is a letter. You don't do that when you write a letter to the people that you love. You don't go, okay, here's chapter 10 in my letter or table of contents in the beginning of your letter. You don't do that. Paul didn't do that. People have put these chapter divisions in it to make sense so that you can follow along in preaching and in studying. There's a division in it, but that's not divinely inspired. So when you read verse 1 and the word 4 is there, well, listen, he's just continuing what he is still saying in chapter 9. So now you've got to go back to chapter 9 and look at verse 25. Every, some, listen, some of y'all are going to like this because now you're talking sports. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now what was point number one? If you want to understand verse 13, then point number one is the Christian must learn self-control. Look at verse 25, chapter 9. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So did you catch what he wrote in verse 25? Now look at it with me. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things self-control it's so critical he underscores it in verse 27 keep my body under control why is it so important well this is what proverbs says chapter 25 verse 28 a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls you have no defenses the enemy can attack anywhere he wants so self-control is something that the Holy Spirit is producing in us, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is producing it in us. Paul says, now the Christian must exercise it. You've got to discipline your body, keep it under control. We exercise what the Holy Spirit is producing. He's producing self-control. He's producing self-discipline. We exercise that. Now the reason we have to exercise this is because verse 14 in chapter 10 is coming. Now look at what it says. This is what's coming. This is where Paul is leading. This is the verse after our verse. He writes, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This entire chapter of chapter 10 is about idolatry. But what is idolatry? All right, so you ready? 
I'm going to hit some hard, hard stuff about idolatry. Let me, let me get us all on the level playing field. I need everybody to look at me for just a moment. You ready? You've got to take this like a man. God said to Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm telling you, you've got to brace yourself like a man, brace yourself like a woman, receive truth. I'm receiving it too. You ready? Every single one of us are idolaters. Listen, if you don't even understand that, then you have no understanding of your heart. You are an, an idolater. I am an idolater. You can make an idol out of everything. Anything that is created, you can make an idol of. And we make idols of hundreds and hundreds of things. So let's start with that. Let's, let's start with that sort of, that accusation of our own soul. I am an idolater. Verse 13 is going to build something into us to prepare us to flee from idolatry. Paul says every Christian must exercise self-control. That has something to do with verse 13. So let's find out what idolatry really is. It's all about worshiping someone or something other than God to get what your heart desires. I'm going to say that again. Idolatry is all about worshiping something or someone other than God so that you can get what your heart desires. Adam and Eve, now think Genesis 3. They're in the garden. The serpent's in the tree. The serpent is speaking to Eve, not Adam, never does, speaks to Eve telling her all about what she can get if she plucks that idol from its branch and puts it to her mouth. You could be like God. And she says, I could be wise like God, knowing good and evil. And she ate. She gave some to her husband who was there, and he ate. So in all forms of idolatry, it's me, it's me wanting to be like God, in control of my life, able to give my desires the success that I want. That's what idolatry is. It's me in the center. It's really self-worship. It's using the idol to give me what I want. And there are lots of ways to test for this. You ready? Then here's where you brace yourself. Do you worship beauty? Do you worship beauty? Well, try going a week without exercise and see how you feel mentally and emotionally notice i said mentally and emotionally go out in public if you worship beauty go out in public periodically without makeup engage whether your sense of beauty is focused on your outer self or your inner self Notice how often mentally, you may never say it, but notice how often mentally you're comparing your looks to other people's and how much you fantasize looking differently, how much you fearfully look for those signs of aging in that mirror. Well, to see if you worship food. Take a break from junk food for a week and observe just how often food is a reward and an escape. See, idolatry takes hold of our thoughts. You obsess. It's almost like you can't think of anything else. And that stress event is usually the trigger for it. And you feel it getting more and more throughout the day until you finally have to pluck the fruit 
to silence the voice. That's idolatry. It can consume us mentally. Well, to see if you worship entertainment, start taking regular times to experience quiet and stillness. You find that you have to have music playing constantly. Crowds out that redemptive silence. When you're having that stressful day, are you, are you looking for your Netflix binge-watching evening or that new book that you can live vicariously through? Or can't wait to get back on Facebook when you can just spend an hour or two hours on it? To see if you have elevated your children above God. You can make an idol of your children. I can do it out of my children. If you've done that, well, listen, begin praying them over to God and, and see if a battle of wills erupts in your life and fear. God, what's going to happen to them if I'm not in control? Listen, you can make an idol out of anything or anyone. You can hoard and build your house with things. Relationships can be idols. Larger homes than you need can be an idol. Aggressively working for that next rung on the career ladder could be an idol. Maybe you need to contact that realtor and begin downsizing. You got a house you really don't need. Why would you want to live in a house that's bigger than you need? When you can bring your life into simpler more affordable means and give more generously if you want to keep money and greed from becoming idols then give more money to god's work around the world examine your motives before you click buy it now on ebay or place your order on amazon do you need that do you want that what exactly is motivating you to buy it Hold on to your cell phone long after the next generation of phones comes out. Cash out some of that excess jewelry. It's just sitting there. I mean, how many pieces do you really need? Sell some of those extra shoes. Give the money to the poor. Take a pass on the latest fashions. Be content with the clothes that you've already been given. Pass over that promotion that comes with a price. Keep your ability to spend time with your family. Leave your laptop at home. Turn off your phone in the evenings. Go on vacation without them. See how powerful that pull is to keep checking in. I need to be needed at work. That's an idol. Examine why you are so undone when someone is upset with you. How important is it that people respect you or, or are influenced by you? Idolatry, listen, it is pervasive to every single human being, and we must take constant vigil against it. You've got to learn self-control. So if you've got an issue with idolatry, now let me change that a little bit grammatically, since we all do have an issue with idolatry, Paul is saying you've got to learn self-control. But one of the enemies of self-control is point number two. It's called overconfidence. Overconfidence. It's where Paul turns next. The Christian must not become overconfident. Now listen, have you ever seen a movie where maybe they go into the security booth and they look at the security footage and they're backing it up and all the images are going in a frenetic pace and then they get it to where they want and then they start it forward. That's kind of what I'm doing. This is the approach that I'm taking on this sermon. We're backing it up to chapter 9 and then we're moving it forward in real time. 
And our aim is to get to the intended meaning of verse 13. So you watch, now listen, you watch the scriptural footage while I fast forward us through Paul's history lesson. Verse 1, chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware. Now listen, look at me, break time, hold on, ready? 4 says you've got to exercise self-control. He just said, uh, you've got to exercise, you've got to... You've got to beat your body into submission. You've got to take hold of your desires, your fleshly desires, your body, your physical desires. You've got to beat them into submission. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You know what he's saying? He's saying Israel was privileged to see God perform some incredibly awesome exploits. He led them by a cloud. He delivered them from Egypt through the sea. He miraculously fed them for 40 years with manna and quail. He gave them water to drink, water to drink from a rock in the middle of the wilderness. But despite all of these privileged blessings, almost all of the Israelites died in the wilderness. Look at verse 6. Why? Because they desired evil. They did not keep their bodies under control. They became overconfident. We presume on the blessings of God. We presume, Christian brother and sister, on his grace and his kindness. And we grow lax in our spiritual lives. Listen, grace wrongly understood can make you overconfident. So sure of forgiveness that sin loses its horror. Believing that your gracious God won't be too bothered. He's going to forgive you. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but you know what? I'm just going to confess it, and all is going to be right. That's overconfidence. And overconfidence can create in the Christian a license to sin, just as it did for Israel. Look at verse 7. He says, they were idolaters who sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. The word play is a word with the innuendo of sensual immorality. All right, so listen, we've got to expand the context for a moment. Remember, he's writing to the church in the city of Corinth. That's a Roman city. Very unique. Not really very different from our modern culture in a lot of ways. It was a church surrounded by idols. It was a city immersed in pagan revelry and in morality. Everywhere around them was moral decay. Yet the church, now listen, this is why he's writing this, the church believed themselves perfectly secure in their Christian lives. And they lived without caution as they embraced their culture. This is why he brings the example of the Israelites. They're worldly Christians. This is a church full of the people of God that says, I can live like the world, and God's already forgiven me. It's okay. I'm going to be all right. They've been saved. They've been baptized. They were well taught. They were full of spiritual gifts. All of them, Paul says. They believed themselves mature. John MacArthur said they thought they were strong enough to freely associate with pagans in their ceremonies, their social activities, and not be affected morally or spiritually as long as they did not participate in outright idolatry or immorality. Listen, this is the church, modern. 
Christians who believe that we are strong enough to enjoy what the world has to offer and imbibe in it and enjoy it and participate in it and not be harmed by it. And so look at verse 12. Paul warns, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Listen, one of the surest ways to fall into sin is to become overconfident. Please write that down. One of the surest ways to fall into sin is to become overconfident. You presume on the grace of God. I can do what the world does. I can go and watch all that the world produces. I can listen to all the music that's coming out of the world. I can read all that I want in the world's literature. I can enjoy all that the world produces and not be harmed. That's the presumption. And that's overconfidence. Christian, if you and I live in this world running after it, our spiritual passion will grow cold. There's a warning in 1 John 2.15. Do not love. That word love is agape. Do not count the world or the things of the world as precious to you. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The, world, the word world there does not mean God's creation, as if you've got to hate living life on this planet. That's not what John is talking about there. It is the realm of Satan's influence. The system that opposes God and his will. So when the, world, when the word of God talks about the world, it's talking about the world system. And there's a God of this age that is empowering it. It's in the realm of Satan's influence. So when you see events happening like last week or over this weekend, listen, this is the logical conclusion, the spiritual conclusion of Satan's realm. This is where he wants it to get to. And the church has got to invade it. But you can't invade if you're just like it. So the music that we love, now listen, let this sober you. The music that you love, the music that you listen to, the music that you tell others about, it should not be that which opposes God. You've got to discern the lyrics. The movies that we watch, the TV shows that we make sure not to miss should not be those which put forth ideologies which oppose God's agenda. How we give, how we dress, how we parent, how we work and rest and play, they all ought to reflect God's kingdom and not the world's. And our views on politics and racism and terrorism should be scripture-centered, distinct from the world. And if they're not, listen, Christian, if they're not, you've become overconfident. You've thought that you could live in the world and be of the world and not tainted by it, and your love is growing cold. If your love for God is cold, start examining your heart. Because you've lacked self-control, you've become overconfident. And despite all of their amazing privileges, seeing miracle after miracle, experiencing God's love, providence, and protection in such personal ways, Israel ran after idols, God substitutes. 
And Paul gives this history lesson to us because it serves as examples. Look what he says, verses 6 and 11. They're examples. We've got to pay attention to the example of Israel. Or we, the church, today will become overconfident. We're going to fall as well. And then he comes to our twisted scripture verse and it explodes with meaning. Now we've looked at the context. Here's point number three. The Christian will always be given a way through temptation. We've got to develop self-control. This is the context. We've got to walk with the Spirit of God. We've got to discipline our bodies. We cannot be overconfident thinking that you can walk in worldliness yet remain strong in Christ. You cannot. It's impossible. Yet for every believer, times of testing and temptation and trial, they're going to come. And they can strengthen our faith. Look again at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Something that most of Israel did not do. Endured it, found and went through the way of escape. He's promising us, you can do this. Satan, listen, I want you to understand, if you haven't really listened to a whole lot of what I've said so far, maybe at least lodge this one in your mind, because I think it's pretty important. Satan does not have a lot of tricks in his bag. In fact, he has very few. He's just extremely good at the ones he has. And people of faith, since the beginning of the world, they've experienced the same temptations as us. No, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. The temptations, friends, Christian brothers, sisters, that you face, that I face, they're not any greater. They're not any greater, they're not even any different than any Christian in the time of history has faced. And that is oddly comforting because others have shown that you can endure these temptations. But I want to tell you something about the word temptation. This might be surprising for you. It means to test or prove. And by itself, listen, it has no negative connotation whatsoever. You need to know that. You ready? Now get that in your mind. You've got to understand that. It means to test or prove. It is not a negative word by itself. I'll tell you when it becomes negative in a moment. Temptations are tests. Now listen, my aim from this sermon is that very immediately, immediately leaving this sanctuary, we will all know here comes a test, here comes a, temp comes a temptation. Now I know how to get through it. You're going to see them. I'm hoping your eyes are open all week. I'm hoping you're seeing them with blazing lights and clacks and bells coming off going off and i hope you can see them for what they're intended to do by satan and what they're intended to do by god because there's two different goals they are tests and depending on whether they are administered by god or satan they have different goals now listen you ready this is huge this is absolutely massive what i'm going to tell you god administers and or allows tests to come to us in order to prove your faith genuine. Listen, if you're going through a trial, if he has allowed a, a temptation to come to you, think Joseph, 
with Potiphar's wife. Think David with Bathsheba. Think Abraham with the Egyptian who wanted his wife. Think Lot, his wife, with the temptation to look back. Think Peter, who's about to be sifted, as Pastor Matthew read. Listen, it doesn't matter which one. They all work the same. God has a goal with every test. It's to prove your faith genuine, Christian. Let no one say when he is tempted, James wrote, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What's that mean? Well, here, listen to this. Satan never tests. Satan always tempts with a goal of making your faith fail. Do you see the different aim? God allows tests or God administers tests. Listen, he's got one motive in it. He's only got one. It's to prove your faith genuine. The faith that he has given to you is a gift. He's proving it genuine. Satan, he never tests. He always tempts. And he's only got one goal, and that is to make your faith fail. But we have help in God. Look what the text says. He is utterly faithful. And it's why Jesus taught us to pray. Now listen, you all know this. You know the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. He prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Listen, you've got to transcribe that. It's not from evil. It's from the evil one. He is delivering us from the evil one, from Satan. Now look at verse 13. It's the meat of the sermon. Paul tells us that in every testing of our faith, God is faithful to do two things. Look at the first. He will not let temptation be beyond the ability that he gives you to endure it well. Make sure you heard what I said. You will never, Christian brother and sister, you will never, I will never be tempted. He will never allow a temptation to go beyond the ability that he gives us to endure it and to pass it. And to do well. No one ever, listen, you can never ever say that the devil made you do it. That is utterly theologically impossible. It cannot happen. Christian, listen, you will never be tempted beyond the power that God gives you to endure it and pass the test. Never. Why? Because of the second thing that God is faithful to do. He will also provide the way of escape. Now, I want you to notice something really important here. There's only one way out. It's the way of escape, not the ways. Have you ever noticed that? There's no plural here. God only provides one way. You don't have a couple different exit options. You got one. He is utterly faithful that in every temptation, not only will he give you the power to be able to endure it, he's going to, prove, he's going to create the way through it the way of escape every test that satan uses to tempt us to sin and fail god will give us one way through it and if we don't like that way that god provides or if we don't take it immediately listen christian brother and sister you're going to fail if you don't like god's way if you don't take it immediately you're going to fail but there's something, else, there's something else important with the phrase way of escape. And I want you to hear this. God 
will not take us out of the temptation. God will take us through the temptation. You hear that? Stop praying, God, take me out of this temptation. God, let this temptation pass from me. No, pray that God will take you through it. He will give you the power to do it. He will create the way of escape through it. That's how you pray. The reason why is because he's doing something in your spiritual muscle called faith. He's building endurance. He's building perseverance. He's building steadfastness. Faith is a spiritual muscle. The redeemed are the only ones who have it. And like any muscle, it grows stronger through resistance and difficulty. I love this quote from Spurgeon. It's one of my favorite. There is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. Who would have thought Spurgeon would have written that? But he's right. Everything is hard. There is no easy life. And the Christian who is being drawn down. Now listen, I'm going to capture some of us. The Christian who is being drawn down that internet road to porn. Now listen, if you struggle with this, listen. And suddenly the computer freezes. Or suddenly the phone rings, or your wife walks in the room, or some odd interruption comes. That's God's way of escape. You better take it, and you better do it immediately. He's giving you the power and the means to get through it. So take it. Turn off the internet. Call your accountability partner. Remember scripture. Pray. Refocus on serving those that you love. Don't delay not even a minute. The moment the way will close and your enemies will come about you. Your mouth opens to gossip and listen, that sharp mental flag, that warning comes up. You've experienced this. You, you get ready to say something and all of a sudden that little argument, that debate, that, that hesitancy, that caution comes up. That's God. That's God's way of escape. He's giving you a way out through the temptation to share something you don't have the right to share. If you want to get through the test, then immediately confess it to God. Call somebody, say, listen, pray for me. I almost said something I shouldn't have said. I almost tore somebody down. Don't delay even a second. The way through is going to close. That desire to just buy something you don't need. You're on your way to the store. You're about to click the button on the internet to make that purchase and Jeremy Camp's song, There Will Be a Day, comes on the radio. Listen, that's your way out. There's an eternity to look forward to. Quit living for the things of this world. That's your way out. So get away from Amazon. Turn your car around on the way to the store. Go back home. Direct your money to God's work around the globe and be generous. Don't delay. There's only one way of escape. And when it comes, you got to take it immediately. And when you do, and if you do, your faith will grow. Now listen, I'm going to close in a minute, but you got to hear this. Christian, we must live with self-control. It is appallingly lacking in many of us. Amen? That should hurt our souls to hear that. We have very little self-control. Because in a grace-dominant theology, sometimes you sort of slip on the need for it. You've got to live with self-control. You cannot become overconfident, presuming on God's grace. Instead, listen, depending, 
daily on God's inexhaustible strength, knowing that he promises to not let any temptation overcome the power that he has given to you. And to make sure of that, he's going to always provide a way of escape so that you can get through a temptation and your faith will be proven genuine and it will be for the, for the glory of God. That's all about the book of Job. It was about the glory of God. Because Satan, the adversary, said, you know what? I don't think Job really loves you. And God proved that he did. So this week, I want you to view that difficult moment as allowed by God. I want you to know that Satan wants you to fail this test, this temptation. But you can endure it. You can get through it. Take it immediately. It's one way of escape. He will get you through it. He will give you the power to be able to endure it. Walk with the Spirit of God. Grow in self-control. Discipline your body with its desires. Say no. Examine your motives. Examine your desires. Are they wants or needs? And are they true needs? Because idolatry is built on fake, false needs. Don't be overconfident. For the enemy is far stronger than our own natural strength. But with God's help, we can endure faithfully and gain the victory. Amen? That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13.